Hi, I'm Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal, and we're here to talk with Scott Hutel, who's a neuroeconomist at Duke University, about the developing field of neuroeconomics. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Jason. Why don't you start by telling us what neuroeconomics is? So neuroeconomics is the recent uh, integration of neuroscience, psychology, and economics to try to understand roughly how people make decisions. Mm -hmm. And we think that by combining these fields, we can learn things about the processes that underline people's decisions, and that can help us give a sense of what makes people more excited or satisfied with their decisions, and what are some of the biases that might shape people and push them away from good decisions. And what would you say uh, neuroeconomics adds to the store of knowledge we already have from other fields like, say, behavioral finance? So behavioral finance and its cousin behavioral economics have pointed out many, many ways in which we don't make consistent or some people might say rational decisions and effectively that we have biases we use simple rules when we perhaps shouldn't one challenge though is that those fields have identified all these biases in isolation so that they might say we have the availability bias or the endowment effect and so forth and we have the zoo of biases that creeps ever larger and neuroscience has the potential for finding some general principles that help us think about sets of biases all relate from the underlying features of our, our biology. Mm-hmm. So we can take something about the fact that our brain codes information, say, in relative terms instead of absolute terms, and we can use that fact to predict a whole set of biases that turn out to be interrelated. And where would you say we are in terms of that level of progress in the field? So what's really striking is that neuroscience has really uh, expanded very, very rapidly. So this was didn't, this field didn't even exist in 2001, mm-hmm. and now it's one of the major areas in neuroscience. But the impact on the economic and, and finance fronts has been more measured. And I think that's because people had extraordinarily high expectations. They thought that, in fact, neuroscience was going to come in a revolution of everything. And that's, that's probably um, not only optimistic but wrong, mm-hmm. that really we should think about neuroscience as a way of understanding the people who are making decisions. And by doing that... We're going to understand some of the things that traditional economics and finance leaves out. Yeah. So you've said that we're not rational decision makers, and that's a good thing. Why, why, what's good about it? So in many decisions, we don't necessarily want to choose the best option, especially if it's going to take us an extraordinarily long amount of time or if it's going to take a lot of effort to try to reach the best option that most decisions, in fact, we just want something's good enough. Mm-hmm. This is an old idea. It goes back to Herbert Simon really in the 1950s. But it's a very powerful idea that the challenge isn't necessarily to pick the best option from some huge set of possible options. It's to find something that's good enough and move on. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we should think of our brains as something that's not helping us find the optimum out of some large set, but it's a, a, a basically a, to, a set of tools that we can draw on in order to find something good enough quickly. So um, you've also mentioned that the brain is highly effective at detecting patterns, Mm -hmm. even when they aren't there. Are there any policies and procedures that investment managers or investors might be able to use that could help regulate that problem? So one of the things that people often talk about is that 
when one looks at something very granularly, so you t- check your stocks every hour or every day, mm-hmm. then you're going to have a different sense of how a market behaves than, say, if you look at every month. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that one or the other is a, is a better scale. It means that they have different consequences on your behavior. If you're really checking your retirement accounts, you don't need to look at those daily. If you really are saying, this is money that I am committing to for the long term, mm-hmm. then in that sense, the short-term fluctuations may push you towards something you know isn't in your interest. And so one strategy people often advocate for is to, to calibrate how often you sample something to how often you need to know about it. Again, if it's your retirement, look at it every six months. Maybe rebalance periodically. But if it's something that is a more proximal investment, say you currently need to have the money for a down payment on a house, and you need to know that I'm going to be pulling it out at some point because I want to make sure I'm above some level, then that's something you may want to monitor more frequently. Right. And that's basically because the more frequently I look at my account, the more likely I am, in simple terms, to perceive a trend that might not actually be there. That's right. And, and simply put, I mean, you can imagine you see three, three data points, mm-hmm. down, up, up, something like that. That's a trend, right? Right. Now, of course, any set of three points is going to look like something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really natural for us to take even very small um, sources of data and to try to pull something out from it. And that works great when we're thinking about things in the, in the physical world. If, you throw a st- if I skip a stone on the rot- water, it really will bounce. Yeah. And it balances in a predictable way because there's a physical system there. But in our investments and in a lot of our financial decisions, we're so abstracted from the physical world that the brain systems we have for detecting patterns will get us in trouble. They mm-hmm. see things that aren't there. Right, right. So um, you, you also mentioned in your talk that, that neurons in the brain really code in terms of reference points. Mm-hmm. What, what are the implications of that for financial decision-making? Yeah, so the, one of the real challenges is to try to get people to think about things in ways other than reference points. So you can imagine someone who has a substantial wealth. They should be very close to, to risk-neutral or, even, of course, willing to take on some risk mm-hmm. in their investments. But when, we, when people are given even very small choices or low stakes, they often say that they don't want, to, they don't want this investment to lose money. And, of course, this is the challenge for anyone who manages a portfolio. You can't be sure that all investments are going to make money with, while being on an efficient frontier investing. Mm-hmm. You want people to be, have some tolerance for potential losses and to code that instead of caring about those losses from a reference point, to push away the reference point on the investment level and adopt it at, say, a portfolio level. Right, to and take so, a more global frame. Right. Yeah. And in doing that, whether it's global across investments or global, like extended in time, mm-hmm. you're more likely to be thinking about your investments in a way that's healthier. Right, right. So um, when would you say emotions are useful to financial decision-making, and when might they be harmful? So emotions are can get in the way of decisions, but usually we should think about them as a tool we have. Mm-hmm. They're very helpful in simulating what will feel like when something happens. So often, if you, if you think about, say, a, a large consumer purchase, it's a good idea to, to be prospecting. What am I going to feel like with this? What am I going to think about this, let's say, a boat I purchase a year from now or two years from now? Not just think of it as something in abstract terms. Try to simulate how you'll actually feel when you use that. For investments, a natural thing to do is to think about your, your risk tolerance. So what will I feel like if? Mm-hmm. And for some people, they might say that, look, I, I will be confident with a certain level of, 
of, of um, income in retirement, I don't need to take on more risk than that. And I will be, that, that allows them to set some aspiration level and that can help calibrate their, their investments. So in general, think about it again as something that, that allows you to simulate Mm-hmm. and a perspective about how your future self may feel. Isn't there a lot of research, though, Scott, that shows that people aren't so good at predicting mm-hmm. their future feelings from yeah. their present state of mind? Yeah, if, especially if you do it quickly. So yeah. let me give two examples. Mm-hmm. So if you ask somebody, um, do you want more, um, less money now or more money later? People mm-hmm. are actually are strikingly impatient in yeah. many sorts of financial decisions. But if you give change of situations, so it's not just what would you feel like? but you have a concerted, effortful um, attempt to think about what your future self may need. Mm -hmm. So in the case of retirement planning, what would your 65-year-old self want to do? What hobby would you want to take up? Mm -hmm. What do you think you're going to need uh, in terms of your house? What are you going to do to give back to your community or your alma mater? Mm -hmm. If people take this sort of effortful approach, then it turns out they become much more patient. So it's not just quick reflection. It's Mm -hmm. a more challenging process to simulate that future self. Right, so try to think about it in more detail. In, in more detail and, and to force yourself to, to sort of advocate for that future self. Right. Well, we'll be all very excited to see what neuroeconomics holds for us in the future. Scott Utel, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Copyright 2013 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.